We're going on another series, and this series actually we're partnering with Panit. We're doing this together as Gateway. So that I'll be preaching here today, this, uh, and then tomorrow, next week I'm up at Panit. Uh, and Peter Todd, the lead, you know, team leader up in Panit, is going to be down here preaching. And, and we're going to be swapping all over. Aaron's preaching at the end. He's also going to be preaching up at Panit. So the, the reason being is because we, have the, we felt that God wanting us to, to say a message to Gateway. Uh, and this message is, is, is core to me personally. Like if there was something that I go, I absolutely believe in, it's this series we're in. Because I actually believe everyone needs an encounter with Jesus, a personal encounter. That moment that when God uh, becomes very real to you and I, have you had one of those moments where God becomes super real? Because you see, the heart of Christianity is this idea, God became one of us, and dwelt among us. John, the Apostle John said that the Word became flesh. God didn't become just this theory, He became actually present, and John was able to see Him. So we're doing this series, it's called Snapshots, and it's a means of coming into the reality of who God is. We're going to look at real life stories, we're going to do some uh, snapshots, is that we're going to do spotlights actually of people sharing their testimony, and we have one at the end of this message, but we're also going to look at stories of, of people in the Bible and their encounter with Jesus. But hopefully from this series, from this series we want to see these snapshots in, this, in the Bible would encourage you. Did you know that God wants to encounter you and I? But even better yet, God wants to encounter people. Our prayer is that many people actually would encounter God during this next couple weeks. That we're actually praying all the time. We want to encourage you to pray for people that you would know that they would encounter God. If you could do one thing through the six weeks is just praying, God, we want to see people encounter you. In fact, if you look at this chair, the reason I put this chair here is this. Wouldn't it be amazing that these chairs are filled with new people? Our prayer is that, God, can you always bring someone that these chairs would not be empty? If you prayed that one prayer, praying that God, we would be a people that have an open space for people to feel welcomed and loved and encounter him. I, 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 man, this would be an exciting six weeks. It'd be incredible. And the messages we're, gonna, we, we're going to be in a way, we pray, first of all, relevant and non-threatening enough that you actually could invite a friend to church. And if they hear this, or you can encourage them to hear it online or whatever. But our prayer is this. It's like the Apostle Paul. Do you know, or sorry, John. The one who made that statement in the beginning, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know what? John was an eyewitness and he gave an account of Jesus. But he went through his own journey. He was one of Jesus' followers and from the very beginning. And he believed in Jesus. But the true story is then he actually disbelieved too. And then he wasn't sure what to believe. But then after the resurrection, he became a believer again. 
John, the Apostle John, became a believer, but he went through a journey, and I think we all need to have a journey. We all need to have, what does it mean to have an encounter? But you know what? After the resurrection, after this moment, when Jesus, he saw Jesus alive, he was different. Absolutely different. In fact, he couldn't stop telling people about Jesus. He couldn't stop telling to such a point that Domitian, the Roman emperor, the one who was in charge of everything, said, we've got to shut this guy up. I'm, we're going to throw him in prison. We're going to throw him, actually, we're going to lock him on the island of Patmos. So he has lots of time to think about what he believes. And you know what? Even after all of his friends and all of his companions died off, guess what John believed? Somehow, even though all this is going, he's locked in prison, he says this state, because John, the gospel of John was written while he was on Patmos. And what he says is this, his friend, Jesus, he was convinced that God had took on human form. His friend, Jesus, was more than a rabbi, more than a teacher, more than a prophet. He was the unique son of God, and he met him. And it changed him. It radically made him different. You can't shut him up. No matter if you threw him in jail. He says, I'm not. I am absolutely convinced. But why would God come into this world then? Well, Jesus answered this himself. Jesus in John 17 said this. Typically, we think, you know, Jesus' work was done on the cross, right? And we think about that, we look at that and say, hey, you know what? He paid at the cross. He paid for the sin of all mankind. That's when he did his work, right? This, well, that's true, but that's his finished work. It's an important aspect, but in John chapter 17, this is what Jesus said. And this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Do you have eternal life? It's by knowing him. He's talking about, and he says this, he goes, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me. What? Jesus accomplished the work that he did before the cross? How is that? How did he accomplish it? Well, he says this. In other words, Father, I came to explain to mankind what you're like. I have done everything I can to show who you are. Father, I wanted to show that God is so personable, that God is so present. Uh, Jesus came to take the guesswork out of God. Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation of God, but Jesus claimed to be God. He didn't just come to teach the ways of God. He actually came to show us. In other words, when Philip said, Jesus, can you just show us the Father? What did he say? Philip, don't you get it? Don't you quite understand? If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I am the best way, the the way if you want to see God, that you will ever see or experience. And so when I look at these snapshots, if I want to understand what God is like, this becomes super important. Because this then becomes what I want to explain to people what God is like. Do you know people have a very bad view of God? And so Jesus comes to just demonstrate what God is like, but also he demonstrates whom God likes. So with that said, 
Let's look at one encounter that Jesus has that the Apostle John wrote about. Please open your devices to John chapter 4. Um, I'm not going to read through all these scriptures because the story is actually from verse 3 to about 27. I don't want to read 25 verses to you. I, I, I want to go through the story. I'll highlight some of the verses. But I think that you guys will hear this and hopefully get a snapshot. I call this message the divine appointment with the woman at the well. A divine appointment. Did you know God has divine appointments? He has divine appointments. In verse 4, and this is the one verse that I really want to highlight to you, it said, and he had to pass through Samaria. John makes one little statement that you'd think, okay, well, what's that? No, no, think about it. Jesus had to go here. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, I'll give you some context. With it. Jesus had been teaching. He'd found out that John the Baptist had been put into prison. And Jesus was neat. He taught of one, as one having authority, and people came to listen to him. He taught in such a way that common people would listen. And what was happening is he was going back from Judea to Galilee. Now, if you can see the map there. Now, the distance from Jerusalem to, to Samaria is about 75 miles. Um, or it takes about, it took about 28 hours of walking. And that's according to GPS. The train's a little bit rough, so they had to, to do it. But it's about 28 hours. And they would do that in about two to three days. Uh, it would be a, a trip to Galilee. But in most Jews, it took them most, usually a week. Because what the Jews did, if you look at that, you'll notice is that little curve that says that most of the Jews actually added on two extra days because they would go around Samaria. They would either go to the east or the west, but they would never go through. They would rather work two, or walk two extra days than going through this. But Jesus had to go through. Well, the reason is this, is because the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along very well. They avoided each other because the Samaritans were not pure-blooded. Uh, what had happened in, in, in the history was Israel had separated and the northern tribe had been invaded by the Assyrians. And what the Assyrians did is they interbred with them. And so the Jews in Judea said they're half-breeds and they were so discriminated. They wouldn't even drink from the cup of a, of a Samaritan. So rather than be defiled by going to this place, they'd go around. The Jews racially discriminating them. So, but we see Jesus, he had to. He had to. He had to pass through. Why does he have to pass through Samaria is my question. Why, God, are you on this divine appointment? What are you doing, Jesus? Well, obviously, it's an appointment. How many of you had an appointment and you need to get there? None of you. Okay, well, that's scary. Well, you made it to church. That's all that matters. Praise God. Okay, you're good. You're good. Now, Jesus obviously has an appointment, but he also had a life lesson for his disciples. He was teaching them what God is like. And if you're not a Christian, or if you're used to be, uh, or maybe if you're listening or watching or just checking us out, or maybe a friend brought you to church, I just want you to think about this thought. Let it marinate for, on you for a little bit. Why does he have to go? There's one thought that we hold as Christians, because of God's love. Because of God's love. But you know what? That notion, because of God's love, 
you know, that notion that God is love or God loves everybody. Have you ever seen a bumper sticker that everyone matters to God? Ever seen that? Well, if you're a theist, okay, a theist is this, a person who believes in God, they're not agnostic, they're, they're not uh, atheist, they believe there's a God, but they don't know what to believe, they don't have an understanding, they do think that God is good. Where did they get that notion from? I'll tell you how. From Christians. The idea that God is love is a uniquely Christian concept. Out of all the things that we say what God is like, it is Christians, it was Jesus that said God is love. You see, the Greek Roman and Roman gods... These gods that the culture was accustomed to, they, by personality, were super selfish. In fact, they didn't care about really mankind. They toyed with mankind all the time. So the culture saw religious, these deities that would actually just use mankind or do nothing or play with them. But to actually say that they cared for without some selfish purpose, foreign. Now think about it like this, because if you worshipped a God who doesn't care about people, then why would you care about people? There was nothing in a Greek or Roman philosophy that said you should care for someone else. Who introduced this was Jesus. An absolutely unique and radical thought that God actually loves you. And him going there is because he has to go because God loves And Jesus is introducing this idea, God is a God of love and he loves people, but not just people who are Jewish. Because you see, a Jew understood they were loved, loved by God. But imagine this, Jesus saying he loved, God loves people even outside of the Jewish world. This is an absolute brand new concept. We don't get it because we've heard it. We think if there's a God, well, yeah, he's got to be a loving. Well, what gave you that idea? Outside of Jesus. But the other reason why he's going there is because of this thing. Because of thirst. He had an appointment, but it's really practical. He's thirsty. He's going to a well. But what I love about this thing is Jesus does something when he gets, he's dealing with thirst. He asks this woman for a drink. Now, most of the land in the Middle East is desert. I've never been there, but they say water is actually very important. Wells are very important. Did you know that only 3% of the world's water is fresh? You know, when we open that and lift up our tap, we don't realize how precious this thing is. We take it really for granted. Did you know that each of us is made up about 60% of water, elephants 70%, and tomatoes 90%. That's why when you eat them, they taste like they're nothing. Anyway... That was my biblical interpretation of the tomato. Did you know the fruit, the fall of the mankind, I think it was, it said a fruit, it was a tomato. Just saying. Just saying. No, I wasn't joking. You know, we need water. Without it, we, we actually will die. You can, you can actually go longer without food than you can water. Water is absolutely important. Did you know the average, most people in the average in underdeveloped countries actually walk about six kilometers Every day, a little more than 3.7 miles is the average distance 
women and children every day go for water. And it may not necessarily be clean. But we've taken that for granted. What it means to be thirsty. You know what? Only one-fifth of the world's population have access to clean drinking water. Did you know wars have been fought over water? The ancient Middle East, there was a statement at the time of Jesus that the man who owned a well was better off than a man who owned a well of oil. And in our day, we think, well, I'd rather have a well of oil. But in the time of Jesus, water, so precious. We understand the importance of water. If not, you get it. But I'm going to ask you another question. What about spiritual water? David in the Psalms wrote this. He said, my soul thirsts for you, God. My soul longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. David expressed that in this need and longing for God, like a deer pants for water, he was understanding his own spiritual thirst. He understood that there was something inside him of a need. You know what? Jeremiah uh, talks about how people, how God's people had left God and went to what he said, broken cisterns. Broken cisterns that did not hold water. Jesus is making this correlation between what we need in the natural, we have a spiritual need just as equivalent. You know what? The Bible refers to people without God as having no spiritual water. Zechariah declares their sins, their sins of the people had placed them as prisoners in a waterless pit. 2 Peter 2.17, those not living for God are like waterless springs. Isaiah 57, the wicked are like unstilled waters. What's an unstilled water? It's like your heart without God, you're never at rest. There's no peace for those not living without God. You know what? The reality of the scarcity of water in our world, I actually think there's the same reality of the scarcity of spiritual water in our world. People are thirsty, but they're going to wrong watering holes. They're searching for something that gives us meaning, but nothing can truly satisfy. People looking for all sort of things, alcohol, are looking for some sort of weird pleasure that we can do. We find new and inventive ways to try to, I mean, I just know how much my soul craves for something. Man, Netflix, man, you got my heart. How many of you can testify to that? Thank you, brother. It's just you and me, man. (laughs) We look for religion or we look for relationships. But the Son of God had a divine appointment. He had to meet a woman, and she had a spiritual thirst. That's why he was meeting her. So let me break it down in this story of this. There's, first of all, a couple parts to it. The first is some interaction, and I'm going to share with you Jesus' interaction. And I love this because if he is the Son of God, God in the flesh, what is he like? Well, first, how he interacts with this, this woman is he's very tactful, and he does something that is absolutely unique and shocking. We don't get it in our culture, but them reading this story would be like, what? Say, what? He goes to the lady and he says, can I have it? He asks her for a favor. Now, you might think that's not very much a big thing. No, give me a drink. 
what he's doing, he's putting himself under the obligation of this woman. Could you help me? Could you help me? Jesus is asking someone for help. Okay. Well, this is profound because you know the reaction of the woman, we'll, we'll talk about it, but also the reaction of his own disciples. In verse 27, they later come back and they said this, when his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but, not, but no one said anything. They did not say, what do you seek or why are you talking with her, but they wanted to. What are you doing, Jesus? Why are you doing this? Well, why is it so profound or so unique is there are two reasons. What Jesus was doing was absolutely frowned upon. What he does is he interacts with a woman, but he also starts to teach her. A famous rabbi at the time of Jesus, his name was Eliezer ben Hikernus. He was, he was a, a rabbi at the time, and he talks about some of the prevalent teaching. He was very prevalent in, in the rabbinical league, and he, he said this, Women's wisdom is solely in the spindle. Paraphrase this. Women's best place is in the home, doing their stuff at home. But then he added this, and this I apologize, it was the thought in the culture. He added, and the words of the Torah should be burned rather than entrusted to women. In other words, you should rather burn the Bible than give it to her to read or teach. The idea of actually teaching a woman was absolutely frowned upon. But what is Jesus doing? He's teaching her. You know, some historians even hold to the account, which is true, that women were not allowed to testify in court. The rationale was this, was that at the creation of the temple and tabernacle, the creation of the court of women was God's order in things. And so them not being able to... uh, permitted into the court of men meant they were lesser. And Jesus is flipping that right around. Hallelujah. Women, you are not lesser. He made us both male and female, created in the image of God, both. And that's what Jesus was coming to share and this value that our world sortly messes up. But what Jesus is doing, this is what even makes it more profound. Not only is he teaching a woman, but he's teaching a Samaritan woman. He's elevating women, and then he's elevating those that are outcast. What he's saying is this I don't care what the Jews say about you, I don't care what society says about you, you are worthy of connection and can receive my teaching. All are open. All are available. We don't get that, but that's what was happening at this divine appointment at the well. Jesus' interaction is absolutely unique and crazy shocking. He was sweeping away racial prejudice and wiping away the idea that people of different color or race or economic status or anyone has of less importance. You know what? We live in a world on the blink on the brink of abyss that just because of the things that we deal with, wars and tensions, ethnicity, everything. You know what? We actually, and especially in Canada, if you are indigenous, man, you have a long history of being broken because we as people do not know how to love one another. But what Jesus does, he comes and says, red, yellow, black, or white, 
All are precious in his sight. That's what he was doing at the well. Well, look at the woman's reaction. Now, first of all, we understand it was almost noon. Most, of, uh, most actually came to the well near, near the evening because that's when it was cool, the cool of the day. But she came when it was hot. Why would you go to the place when it's hot? Well, it may be because she is a social outcast. We find this later. But we know her response. We know her response that she had rejection built in. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria. Her response is like this. When Jesus says, can you have a drink? She's like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. I'm just going to reject you before you even try to reject me. Ever had people like that? Well, I won't go there. (laughs) Coffee guy does it to me every day. No, I'm just joking. You know what? Jesus, instead of accepting this rejection card, he just encourages her and engages more. He presses in when people say, no, you will, you'll just reject me. How many of us that, you know, when people say, yeah, just leave me alone, we just say, okay, fine, be your own, you do your thing. Not Jesus. Not the Son of God, not God. Even when you say he'll reject me, he says, I'm not rejecting you. In fact, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who is it that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. In fact, if you understood this, if you understand that God actually wants to give you a gift even when you think he's rejecting you, it's something you can't earn or work for or buy. It's spiritual water. It's forgiveness of our sins because of the cross and the resurrection. Isaiah 55 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Come to me. Come to me, all who are thirsty. She says something. Sir, you don't have anything to draw water from. Where are you going to get this water? She, it's funny because she's thinking so naturally. She's not even getting the spiritual application. Which... What would you do if a person who actually does not understand spiritual things, what do you do? How was your response? Ah, they're not spiritual. Actually, what Jesus does, which is interesting, even when she doesn't get it, because the scripture says that the, that the God of this age has blinded unbelievers. Why can we judge them if they're blind? They are blind for a reason. The devil's poking their eyes out. And Jesus recognized that. He doesn't judge by that. He suddenly says, hey, I know you're not spiritual. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, it says, the things of the Spirit are foolish to the world. So why would we judge them if they think we're foolish or God is foolish? Is Jesus judging them? No, he sees them as blind. But he sees them also with acceptance value and because he accepts her she does something which is profound she makes a connection are you greater than our father Jacob now let me explain why that's profound you might go I don't get it let me explain why you didn't catch that did you our father Suddenly, this lady who's thinking you're going to reject me suddenly makes a connection going, wait a minute, because you won't reject me, maybe we have something in common. We have a same father. Did you know we all have a same father? 
We all have a father in heaven. And she was making a connection going, wait a second, I might think there's a little bit of difference, but there is something. Are you greater than our father? Well, father was actually there, but God, flesh, anyway. Jesus declares, he's the living water, and whoever drinks the water that I give, they shall not ever thirst again. He's offering to us this morning, are you thirsty? You know what, you may have been baptized, you may be a good person, but deep inside, in your heart, there's still no satisfaction. Did you know you can do that? You'd be at church and absolutely be really thirsty today. You know, a pastor can be thirsty. And what does Jesus do? He offers a drink. Come to me. Come to me. I want to give you living water. And so what should you do? Just receive it. Accept it. Drink of that living water. This is this woman's response. Jesus went to the cross, his suffering on the cross, the reality of which when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you know that at the cross, what Jesus was doing was he was taking the penalty so that he would be alone, he would be rejected, so that we could actually have living water. If it wasn't for Jesus doing that, there was no reason why you should be having that thirst gone. For we have all rejected God, and God suddenly says, I'm going to reject my son so that you're no longer rejected. He became lonely and empty so that I can have the living waters. Nothing stopping me today from receiving. Nothing. Well, this last part is this, is Jesus does a prophetic declaration. He says, go call your husband. Now, was Jesus exposing her sins? No, in that culture, did you know something? Men were the only ones allowed to divorce their wives. In other words, she had been rejected five times. And now she is with someone who will not marry her. No, Jesus isn't exposing her sin. He's basically saying, I know you, and guess what? I'm still not rejecting you. So not only is he talking to a Samaritan, not only is he talking to a woman, but now he's talking to a woman with a bad history. And he's still loving and and receiving. And I love this because he's illustrating to us as his disciples this is how I interact with women. This is how I interact with people. This is, how I in, this is how God interacts with the outcasts of all outcasts. Now, she says, I have no husband. And this, look at the, how he gives dignity to her. He, he does something. He says, what you said is truth. For, again, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're with is not your husband. He affirms you. You're right, but I do know your full story. Do you know what? This morning, God knows actually our full story. He knows all of our sins. No matter how the good face we can sometimes put on, he sees and he knows and still loves. And he he prophetically declares, I know you. What does it mean when God says, I know you? And I still created you and loved you since the beginning of time. What happens when you encounter that reality? When you suddenly know that the God of heaven said, I created you and I loved you since the foundation of the earth and that I desire that none would perish but all have eternal life. You are loved. It changes you. 
You know what? What it does for this is it, it causes me to face my sins. No person can come to Christ unless there's an understanding and, and there's conviction. But repentance being the ability to change our mind, what causes me to repent? It's his kindness that leads me to repentance. It's understanding this love that's suddenly realizing what God has done for me that says, I want to change. And this is why when she turns around and she says, please give me some of this drink. Because something prophetically, you know me, and yet you still will choose and love me. Where can I get some of this? Church, I pray that we would actually grow in the kindness of Christ more. In the six weeks, we are just something impacted of the love of God that's so intrinsic that we are we're exuberating the kindness of God. We are more in touch with the love that he's given to us that we can give to others. For it is by grace we've been saved. And you can do it in a lot of ways. And sometimes it's this. Sometimes you're just thinking that you look at some person like, you know what, I have a lot of grace for kids growing up in church. Imagine this, you're trying to figure out your faith. And when you're trying to figure out your faith, suddenly you're really wrestling through it. And then suddenly you're almost, you deal with that rebellion. Like, I want to just do things my way. And you start doing things your own way. But then what happens, the church going, oh, that kid's getting rebellious. And he's like, well, what did God do to a rebellious son? How was his response to a prodigal son? He waited. And waited and longed for that, for him to come to his senses, knowing that the love of the Father was there for him. And that that would somehow sink in so that when he went back, he's going, I'll just be your servant. He's like, no, you were lost, but now you were found. That's the kindness of God. That's the love of looking at people who are kids, maybe rebellious in church. Maybe you're rebellious. I love you in Jesus' name. Luke, can point at you. You're rebellious. Well, this is the last part is the woman's prophetic declaration. What's her response? As I already said, please, sir, could you give me this living water? She felt the emptiness of her own soul and she was very sincere. But did you know sincerity, sincerity isn't enough? Did you know you can be a sincere person? In 1964, an NFL player, his name was Jim Marshall, what happened is this, he picked up the football from, from a fumble and he saw the open field and he ran like he was absolutely like a man uh, possessed. He ran and he scored the touchdown. And he was like, yeah! He was absolutely sincere in how he grabbed the ball. But he went the wrong direction. He had an inkling that something was wrong when the opposing team was hugging him. <laughs> totally sincere, but going in the wrong direction. You see, Jesus isn't wanting us to get into a religion, but he wants to have us to come into relationship with God. You see, the Jews had religion, but religion actually was inhibiting them even going around or going into Samaria. Their religion was actually inhibiting showing the love of God. And Jesus is not bringing us into a religious practice, but relationship. This is what Father is like. This is how I act. The neat thing is this, is how did Jesus respond to the little that she knew? Because again, he's not thinking religious. She just says, 
Well, tell, tell me how, to, how do I worship you? That's her question. Tell me how I can worship you. And he says, this is the neat thing. He says, because she's choosing to engage with God, how do we worship? Jesus teaches her, you, God is spirit and true worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. God's desire is that we would actually encounter him with our heart and we would trust him. And where you worship God is not important, it's but how, how you worship. Your life given to him is your act of worship if you know Christ. Think about that. It's not just believing in this. It's when you say, God, I'm giving you my worship. And how am I going to worship you is in spirit and in truth. It sounds like insincerity, but it's recognizing that he'll receive your worship because he loves you. And you're tired of living your own life and worshiping other things. And maybe that's you today. We as Christians sometimes need to stop worshiping other things. It's so easy to get caught up in the things of this world and the stuff, and yet I just want a drink of living water and this offer that God gives me today that I realize that the enemy tries to rob, steal, kill, and destroy and get me thinking about everything else. But it's so neat when Jesus says, I have a divine appointment with you. I have to. I want to. I want to interact with you, but I also want to speak prophetically to you. I want you to understand the words that I have for you, that I declare unto you, that I know even your sins, or I know where you're at, but I still have much more for you. How many of you want an encounter with God this time? I know I do.